1: That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 120 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on Zoom, iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, enough about how you got here, let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman, and with me like memories hidden deep within my psyche, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler!
0: Hey everybody, how you doing?
1: Pretty good voice in my head, how are you?
0: (laughs) I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, uh, Do you know that soap is made of fat anyway?
1: (laughs) We're all good here now, thank you. at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we continue to explore the final arc of the Dawn of the Jedi era, Force War, by John Ostrand. Now consider that your spoiler warning sentience and Beyonders of All Ages, because here we go, on another adventure beyond the films.
0: That's right. No uh, pre-spoiler stuff here because we dealt with that back in the previous episode. If you haven't checked it out, check that one out. Uh, we covered the first two issues that time around. So we left off with the Jedi uh, attempting a major assault on the Rakatan base uh, on Ska'gora, although it is a trap in this case. Uh, Ska'nas has laid a trap for the Jedi. Uh, Dagon Locke, has been separated from the rest of the group and presumably swarmed and taken prisoner. Uh, Seknos Rath has been shown as having been taken prisoner. He's inside a stasis pod type thing, having the force drained out of him to be used for Rakatan technology in their base. And uh, Trill and Zesh just found their way into the Rakatan base, and Trill, of course, revealed her true colors, turned on him, zapped him with force lighting, now making Zesh a prisoner as well. Um, so we pick up here with Part 3, which is probably the biggest turning point, I would say, of this series. a lot of stuff happening here and a lot of revelations happening here that aren't huge revelations for us, but they are for the characters themselves.
1: Well, you get that feeling that it, it takes a turning point at this point and kind of becomes more Zesh's story, whereas before you didn't get that feeling. But from here forward, suddenly the whole era kind of became more about Zesh than I'd ever been in, you know, thinking of.
0: Yeah, it was very much, really the last couple of issues didn't feel like it had a central character at all. Uh, it, it's very much been sort of about the conflict in general. So we're back at the okay. battle on Skagora. Uh, we get some cool action art here. You know, we got uh, Koda once again back on top of Bush, the winged Rancor fighting. A, a great image of her screaming for Quan Jiang as she goes in to try to save him uh, amidst the battle. But really, again, it's sort of another of these things where, as we talked about in the last episode, there's the broader conflict that's going on, which is the Force Wars. You narrow that down, and there are the specific battlefields at any given time, like Skagora. But they tend to do what Star Wars does very well, which is to show brief glimpses of the bigger battle, but spend most of the time narrowing it down to the conflicts going on for the individual groups of characters we want to follow. Uh, But there's a lot of characters to follow, in Dawn of the Jedi. So one of the things we mentioned last time was how it does feel like this is a very action-packed arc that maybe could have stood to be expanded a little bit more in which a lot of the characterization is focused mainly on just Shea, Koda, and Zesh uh, and in a lot of other ways it just kind of zips through things because of having only five issues to wrap things up here. We also talked a little bit about how there's a time jump of one year between Prisoner of Bogan and this which in some cases made certain sequences somewhat awkward, like why hasn't more character development happened with Trill uh, and Zesh or with Shea and Zesh in the last year, but at the same time got us into a point of being able to start mid-war and see the end of the war before this series actually ended. So now you're kind of caught up on uh, the previous episode here. Uh, but as we begin, really the story kicks into high gear, not with that first battle sequence, because that's just kind of continuing the battle we saw in the previous issue, but it's with Zesh. We find that Zesh is in what's called the Mind Rack. And he's in the Mind Rack now, remembering having been in a Mind Rack before. Um, It's kind of weird meta-type storytelling here. And we basically get to see a flashback to events happening in the middle of the events of Force Storm. Back when basically Zesh was the one to say, you know what, Trill might not be able to find Tython or this planet that you're looking for. But I sure can. Um, and the idea that, um, at some point, Tolkar was able, or sorry, Skalnas was able to get Zesh from Tolkar and use him to find Tython, but also somehow brainwash Zesh into being his agent aboard Tolkar's vessel. So that when they do find, uh, Tython, it winds up that he basically is, is gonna betray his own master on behalf of Skalnas destroy that ship, uh, and in doing so, wind up opening up the door for him to be, so this weird amnesiac, who still is being pushed by his programming in the mind rack to find out more about the Rakatans, or find out more about the Jedi and Tython for the Rakatans, even though he himself doesn't realize that's his mission. We kind of got explanations for that through flashbacks and such in the previous arcs, But we never really saw it play out in an actual scene. It was very much sort of like quick flashes of memory. And here we get to see the sequence in which Skalnas is brainwashing him in the mind rack, is programming him to be a betrayer, to be a spy. Um, And actually we see it from Zesh's side. When Zesh reaches out in the force with the whole force shadow thing, as he's trying to basically seek out Tython in the force... And rather than it being simply like he usually does, which is simply to be able to sort of put himself there in Force Shadow form, recognize the surroundings and know where it is, mm-hmm. in this case, the Jedi are so powerful in the Force on that planet that we see where Tasha Ryo, Shade Koda, Rath, and Dagan Lok all see him in Force Shadow form, which is what kicks off a lot of the events of Force Storm. I found that... Um, I mean, a lot of this issue is taken up with that backstory as a way of basically teaching Zesh that, look, you are nothing but a force hound. You will always be a force hound. You are never anything but a slave. Anything else you believe you are is a lie. You're no better than that. You belong back serving the Rakatans. Uh, and that sort of hammering that into his head. And I think A, we needed a long sequence to really believe, even remotely, that Zesh would change sides again, which he does. Um But also, I was impressed by the fact that with all this other stuff going on with the Force War that they're trying to tell, that they would spend so much time in this issue finally giving us a lot more depth to the events that happened back in Force Storm. It's it's one of these things where you would hope that at some point you'd get the other side of the story, you'd get more depth with that, but it seemed as though as of last arc, well, that was probably all we were going to get. All we were going to get was those quick snippets of memory uh, to tell us what happened. And that's it. They'll just leave it alone. To take the time to actually give us those scenes here, I thought was kind of a bold storytelling move because I would never have expected them to spend that much time in a five issue series focusing on events that in a lot of ways are old news to us, even if they're new revelations to Zesh.
1: When it works, I mean, when I first read through it, I I remember getting to the point where Zesh is, you know, you've gone like, what, three pages into all that dialogue. And Zesh is like, no, 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 you lie. Destroying that ship, all those people. Only someone lost in the dark could, would, the Jedi, they call me friend. They've shown me that there is more to the Force than darkness. There is a light side as well, a, a balance. I know this to be true. And then, you know, the Praetor, he just goes, here is your truth, Zesh. Whenever your master sent you forth, death and destruction followed. You are a harbinger, finding worlds, dooming worlds, never a sign of remorse or pity. This is who you are. You are a shadow warrior. You are the dark. And then it shows all the the different things that happen. And You, know, you kind of get the feeling like he's Silver Surfer and the Rakata or uh, Galactus. But then the next page, it turns over. And, and of course, you know, he just like totally gives in. He's like, yep, no light. No balance exists. There's only darkness. I am your shadow. I'm your agent. What is your will, Predor? And there was a part of me, though, that was like, man, that happened really fast because that one panel, but he was in that machine the whole time. And then once you realize that, it's like, okay, yeah, I could see it. I mean, and then you get that feeling like, you know, poor Zesh, he's been having these nightmares that this moment was going to happen. And now it's finally came. It's like, is he playing along or is he full victim to everything that's going down?
0: And it does seem like there's at least a little bit of a passage of time here. Maybe not much, because the Battle of Skagora is still going on, but battles can last days and days and days and days. I mean, uh, you know, in real life, you know, we've seen battles, like especially in World War One, for instance, that lasted a matter of months. Um, but it seems as though there's a little bit of a passage of time, because as we go further here and we see uh, Dagon Lok, it seems like Dagon Lok's uh, facial hair grows significantly with this, within the span of a few panels here. It looks more like it's like a, a full bone goatee slash beard rather than being stubble, kind of like mine always tends to be. Um, but he lets him out, and sort of the next beat of the story, you can sort of say there's three beats of this issue. There's the, he has to be twisted back to the dark side, he has to be twisted back to the Rakatans, and then uh, we have to have the revelation of what's going on and kind of pushing things forward as far as the Infinity Gate is, and then we have to see um, basically the Jedi or the Jedi be sort of kicked in the crotch when it comes to their fighting ability so the next beat of those is we have uh, Zesh and Trill and Skalnas, uh holding Dagan Lok prisoner and of course he's you're know, like a oh man it's a uh, you're gonna use a mind twist on me you know I perfected that kind of stuff you know you know, Zesh you're a traitor you know it's all the kind of stuff you would expect to hear from Dagan Lok when he finds that Zesh has turned sides But the key here is that Zesh has told them all about how Dagan Lok, as we found out in the previous arc, had gone into the chasm under Anil Kesh, and in doing so had had those visions. But we never quite got exactly what it was he saw. We got bits of his visions of what he talked about as far as like, you know, him seeing himself at the head of a Jedi army and all that kind of stuff. But what about what he saw down there? What about what he found? And in this mind warp, this mind twist... We learn, basically, that he sees worlds all over, an infinity of stars, chaos, etc., etc. And it finally confirms for Skalnos that, yes, in the chasm, that is where he's going to find this infinity gate, this prime infinity gate that's going to send him wherever he wants to go within the galaxy and allow him to become the leader of the Rakatans and manage to be the one to basically conquer the universe, at least as far as he expects. Um, Which is shifting us towards the next step, kind of like the quick, you know, uh, uh with the the Jedi and kind of hitting them where it counts, um, where he basically, it's kind of a weird sequence, Skoss uses what feel, looks like force lightning to basically imbue some of his own force power into Trill and Zesh to then send out Trill and Zesh as force shadows. We never really see what happens with Trill, but we see what happens with Zesh. And Zesh's force shadow shows up where the Jedi seers are. And it's this idea that the Jedi seers are the ones that have been allowing the Jedi to have any kind of advantage in this war whatsoever. And essentially, Zesh is like a portal for this darkness that is being sent out by Skalnas, And the darkness overwhelms Tasha, Ryo, Sendon, the other seers. And in doing so, blinds them to the Force so they can't see the future anymore. Very much sort of like um, um, seeing other characters like... uh, uh, gosh, Ulik Keldroma being blinded to the force in many ways yeah. by Nomi Sunrider back in Tales of the Jedi. And the Jedi immediately sense this and are being informed that this was because of Zesh. And this, of course, causes Shay to worry about what's going on. You know, Tao, you know, what's happened to him? How can it be? And gives us a chance to see Dagan look and Seknos both basically proclaiming their desire to kill Zesh next time they see him. Definitely a game changer of an issue as far as this story arc goes, but very much also sort of divided into those three beats. We got to turn him to the Rakatans. We got to find out that the Infinity Gate really is down in the Chasm, so that can be our target for the next two issues. And we got to blind the Seers because that's going to play a role in how the story plays out. Hit one, two, three. Okay, done. We can move to the next issue. Kind of is the is the feeling of this one.
1: Yeah, well, I, I saw kind of how he went about attacking the seers differently than you. I mean, the first thing I want to point out, though, like, like you said, the passage of time must have taken place because Zesh is now shirtless and Trill is now shattered her cloak. Uh, but when he, you know, he brings them together, he goes, "Feel my mind, my power within yours. We are one. You are conduits, amplifiers for my power. Yield to it. When he sends out the Force vision, I gathered that he sent out the vision of Zesh because the the vision of Zesh that shows up is Zesh fully armored. So I kind of had the feeling that it was all... The, the Praetor doing it and that they all just assumed that it was Zesh and then they, they, they totally did the attack it came from Zesh it came through Zesh it was like oh no Zesh was you know they were using that connection kind of like what uh, in, in Clone Wars Season 6 what Sidious did with Dooku through Yoda you know we're going to use your connection Dooku to attack Yoda and that was kind of what I saw the same thing here that, that it was all Praetor that was doing it but he was using them as the conduits and I like the way that he you know he said that because by, by saying that he gave it solidification in the form you know you're now my conduit you're now amplifying my power and because he he saw it as so it became so and i love that that the way that they were able to use that against the jedi and that you know the way it wipes them out how the darkness kind of overglow uh, goes over them and then next thing you know their pupils are gone and they got their eyes burnt i i thought that was a really cool moment and then the fact that all the jedi noticed it. i mean there's that one Nagra, by the chasm what has happened mad dog Quanjang, did you feel that a darkness in the Force. The balance has shifted to the dark side. And I, I don't know, to me, it was like like I was saying earlier in our spoiler-free part in the last issue or last episode, how, you know, you get that feeling like from here moving forward, the darkness became so prevalent that the Jedi had to work to bring the light back and to bring it back into balance because it was permanently tipped. And this was kind of like that moment.
0: That brings us into issue number four. Uh, the one that finally gets the date correct for this series and for... Uh, the rest of Dawn of the Jedi. Thank you very much to Leland Chi and Jan Dersimo when I raised that issue with both of them for going to Dark Horse and actually getting that done. I, I'm shocked and amazed that that went through it quite as quickly as it did, which is awesome. Um, but finally, we get sort of, again, another passage of time. Because by the time this issue starts, the Jedi have basically pulled back from Skagora and have returned to defend Tython. Because the last vision of the Seers before their visions were blocked by Zesh, or by Skalnas through Zesh, was of seeing the Rakatan's attack, Anil Kesh, which, of course, is above the chasm, which is where the Infinity Gate, the Prime Infinity Gate, is located. Although, the Jedi don't know this. Um, so, we get to see a couple of quick conversations. Uh, Quan Zhang wondering whether or not uh, Sheikota would be willing to kill Zesh-slash-Tao if it came down to it, if she'd even be able to do it, um, and the Tasha Ryo is still there. Despite being, uh, blinded to the force, or at least blinded to the visions, and she has brought Anang's holocron, another thing that was set up back in a previous arc. This ancient holocron that has, uh, the, the, the keeper of the holocron is Anang, who's one of the Kwa, who did have personal experience with the Rakatans. They're the ones that explain that, that it's Anang that explained who the Rakatans were and what not to the Jedi uh, in a previous arc. So she's going to try to use that to look for answers to meditate and try to find uh, some type, uh, some type of guidance as to how to defeat the Rakatans. Uh, you know, they were the ones who fought the Rakatans before, dealt with them before. Maybe the key to defeating them is somewhere inside that hologram. And oh, how right she is. Um, we find that apparently Volnos Rio's whole let's try to make a separate piece with the Rakatans thing that everybody thought was crazy back in a previous issue, is now gone. It's now no longer an issue, apparently, because the settled worlds are still in the fight. They haven't left. Instead, they are all on Ashla, uh, one of Tython's moons, the light side of the moon, so to speak, uh, and the Rakatans have found them and attacked them there. They were supposed to be there to be sort of a last line of defense before the Rakatans can reach Tython, and yet the Rakatans have attacked them before they were ready, and they're basically being wiped out in many respects. Um, we see sort of the the last-ditch bit of the battle. It's like any other space battle you see within, like, a Star Wars film. It gets bad before it gets better. And this is the it's-getting-bad part of it. And I found it interesting that amid the space battle going on above Ashla, which is technically also above Tython, um, we see in the space battle, uh, we see Hawk Rio and we see Rory Finn flying the starfighters. And while it's cool to see them in the story them showing up here and Hawk showing up once earlier really sort of felt to me like... uh, Like, right now, I'm watching all the old Law & Order stuff all over again. Every single one. Season by season, series by series here. And as you get further along within, say, Law & Order SVU, you reach a point where they've got this cast of a bunch of characters, but characters like John Munch, characters sometimes even, like, Stabler, will wind up being there. Like, they're in the credits... So you see them in the background in a scene, or they get, like, one scene talking to Benson or Cragen, and then the rest of the episode has nothing to do with them whatsoever. It's kind of one of those, well, they're in the credits, and they're contracted for this story, so we better make sure they show up in there somewhere. But they're just kind of brief, you know, it's it's a contractual contractual obligation to have them in there, not necessarily a story point. And it's kind of the same thing here. It's like, well, Rory and Hawk were big players earlier in the story, But we have nothing for them to do whatsoever within this one, so we'll just make them some of the pilots out there and put them in this battle so at least we've touched on what they were doing during the battle. It very much feels like there's so many freaking characters in Dawn of the Jedi that while we're focused on the handful that make this a more personal story here, you do wind up seeing that instead of completely leaving out the others, they get their little guest spots. You know, their Wedge in the Battle of Yavin. (laughs) You know, they're bigs. In the Battle of Yavin, they get to show up, but they're not who we follow for the entirety of the story. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure how to feel about that. Part of me says that it's, it's doing disservice to those characters not to give them more screen time, so to speak. But with so many other characters going on, I guess we should just be happy that they got a chance to show up at all. So we knew it was going on and it didn't feel like they were completely dropped characters from previous arcs. I mean, what are you thinking on that?
1: that that's where i get that feeling like you know there was more planned originally that this wasn't going to be the end or that the beginning of this arc wasn't going to be how it was going to wrap up that the ending kind of got forced down uh you know maybe they you know like i said a, a 14 or 15 12 issues somewhere around there but think of me if you did three arcs of this force war and you you know it had this be the opening one and and You were going to have another one that built up more of those characters and then have a a nice big four issue conclusion or five issue conclusion that would have worked more. But I, I think for what they did, moving it forward, making it smaller, adding them like they did was probably the best way to get them in there and keep them included. But yeah, I get that feeling there was something more originally intended for those characters. I mean, they were introduced, they had moments and stuff like that throughout, but nothing was really fleshed out. I mean, when I think about Legacy and KOTOR and things like that, and well, especially Legacy, it was like almost no character was ever just, you know, a one and done just here specifically just to be used this one time. They always kind of came back to them and, and made them relevant. And I have that feeling that there was plans for more here, but they just had to cut a lot of stories out.
0: And that brings us to the next segment of the issue, and this is kind of one of those moments I was like, wait, really? There's so much of this story that I really enjoy, even though it does happen so quickly, and yet there's, every once in a while there's a sequence that leaves me scratching my head. And what we've got here basically is Skalnas, who now has basically taken Zesh as his official force hound, tells Trill to now lead the ground forces. And she's ticked off about that because she thinks her place is to be at his side as his force hound. He's like... No, you know, Zesh is now my hound. You have your orders. Obey them and and, uh, be satisfied that I don't roast you alive. And it just so happens that while he's talking to her, she is in the room that has like the little power core thing and all the different little pods that have the captured Jedi in it. And I guess what I'm supposed to, what we're supposed to get out of this is she gets so angry over being slighted by this and the idea of this being a betrayal. That she lashes out with force lightning, and somehow in doing so, that force lightning zaps some of the prisoners, including Seknos. And Seknos is fed partly by her anger because of his pain and fear, along with her anger. And that's part of what's going to allow him, among all the different prisoners, to be able to free himself later. It, it kind of seemed weird, like, how how Trill's lashing out in anger with the Force lightning and needing to show that Sechnos is affected by it, how that affects anything else going around it. Did you get the sense that that was supposed to somehow make it so that he could be the one to break out?
1: Well, I, yeah, I didn't understand... I, 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 Well, maybe that was it. Maybe that was she was trying to do it so he would gain that power. But no, I didn't either. I'm like, oh, so Zesh betrayal. And I was like, okay. And then the narrative goes, pain leads to fear. Fear leads to anger and anger leads to the dark side. Like a parasite, the ship feeds on the dark surge of power from the slaves. Anger or dark anger engulfs Seknos. He senses Trill, goading the slaves. The depth of her anger crackles like force lightning, charring his heart, his hate seethes. And then they go to another page and I'm like, wait, what? What's going on? I don't get it. Like, is she b- destroying the machine? Is she giving them power? I mean, are they now all like, you know, were they all just channeling just the force at first and now she's tapped them in directly to the dark side? And I mean, because there's a reference later that, that Sechnos makes to the other people there that they only know of the dark side. But yeah, there, was, there wasn't there was enough narrative there to explain to me what was going on, and I didn't get what I was supposed to understand from this just by the, the what's there on the page. I was left scratching my head. I was kind of hoping you would have some insight for me.
0: <laughs> not a chance. Not a chance. Um, okay, so it turns out that the battle that's going on on the surface of Tython, um, right there around Anilkesh, the force that Trill is leading, which is mostly flesh eaters, that is a distraction. Because Skanos takes down a little shuttle, which includes Zesh and Dagon Lok, and is able to use Dagon's knowledge of the chasm and the area around it to get close to the chasm itself so they can go down inside and actually get to the Infinity Gate. And uh, Dagon, of course, kind of looking all crazed and mad, is basically mocking this idea that they could even go down there at all, because the Jedi who have gone down there have come back, you know, driven mad in a lot of ways. Um, people without the Force have come back catatonic or dead. Droids come back with their circuits fried, and even the exploratory beam from Anil Kesh, which is above the chasm, can't get past the so-called chaos wall, which is like this barrier um, where everything goes kind of wonky inside the chasm. Um, and... Skalnast basically just kind of very calmly says, yeah, um, see, you don't know the whole truth because it turns out that in Rakatan Legend, we know that there is a prime gate down there. That's where he first reveals that it's a prime gate, not a regular infinity gate. You can go anywhere you want once you go inside the gate and just appear anywhere else in the galaxy. You don't need another gate on the other end, like a Stargate to pass through. Um, And says that we have in our legends, the Rakatan Legends, the idea that there's this symbol... On the Tho Yor, the thing that kind of looks like an Imperial Kong almost that's used as a symbol for this era of Star Wars. And if you keep basically an image of that symbol in your mind, that's the key to get through the Chaos Wall. And if you keep that symbol in your mind and you get to the Chaos Wall beneath, that's where you're going to find the Infinity Gate that you're looking for. Um, and wow. that will allow him to have both Skounas and Zesh go down there. But, of course, in explaining that in his arrogant Bond villain sort of way, he's <laughs> telling Dagon, look, how Dagon and others, once Dagon gets free, because he's just been chained, basically, to a piece of the um, of the geography there, basically saying, you know, yeah, we're just going to leave him for the flesh eaters to eat. Um, yeah, surely nothing cool. bad could happen of if Dagon Lok alive, um, <laughs> Bond villain-wise. Um, but now Dagan, of course, knows what the symbol is, so he would know how to get past the chaos wall too. But I found it an interesting thing to basically take what has been this big mystery of Dawn of the Jedi, uh, make it into something that Rikatans actually know much more about because of their history with the Qua, and kind of take it in a way that I mean, who would have guessed? You have to have been told. It's a great security measure. You have to have been told, or have some kind of legend in your society. To know the way to get through the chaos wall is to keep picturing the symbol from the Thoyor. So there's the connection to the Thoyor and all, but I find it, it, it's much better than just saying, well, you got to go through this cavern and this cavern and this cavern, and then you pop out and that's the safe way to get there. Um, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you know, the penitent man shall pass. If you don't know the clues, you're going to die. It's unlikely you're just going to <laughs> bumble your way by accident, through all those security measures, same thing here. Um, I like that it wasn't just where well, you just got to find your way down through these caves that somehow only Zesh or the Rakatans know about. There's an actual force-based sort of uh, uh, mental way of having to get through it that makes it virtually impossible that anyone would have accidentally made it through the Chaos Wall, which explains why it took so many millennia for them to finally find a way through it.
1: Well, and another thing that gets me scratching my head is. How come the Republic later has this symbol as does the Empire? I mean, it, why are they holding on to this symbol so much? I mean, what happens to the Tho Yours when this is all over? I mean, these things are not quite answered. But another one that, that wasn't answered is you know, when he mentions the Prime Gate and it's a portal to all words and worlds and needs no other gate. But how in the hell do you get back? Like, okay, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna send all these guys through, but hey, uh, wait, where'd the gate go? Y'all, wait, wait, where was the gate? Does it leave a portal open? I mean, how does that work? I wish he would have just explained a little more. Like, you know, you don't need a gate at the other end because it opens a portal that you can travel both ways through. I, I don't know. I that would have been a little more nice to know what was going on because it's like, okay, what's he gonna do? He's in this mad rush to get to this bottom of the pit, he's got his armies up above fighting and dying, and now the galaxy is at his fingertips so what are you going to do? Go to Alderaan?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was sort of the, the, wait, what kind of moment with this? I mean, I thought about it. I didn't think about, I guess the first time that I read the story and going back and rereading it last night, I was thinking, okay, so how must this work? And sort of saying, okay, well, if that's the prime gate that can do that, then that must mean that the other ones you do need a gate at the other end, like they're saying. So those must be more like a stargate. I was trying to think of, you know, is this more like a hypergate kind of thing in Babylon Five, or you're just kind of looking for other comparisons? And then, like you were saying, it hit me last night as I'm laying in bed. Wait, what? You know, how do you ever get? It's, it's like the what is it, Doc Brown in in, in a Back to the Future? Oh, it's a one-way trip. How am I ever gonna get back? I'd be stuck in a one-way trip. Blah blah. It's, you expect someone to be there, like the frazzled Doc Brown, realizing, holy crap, I didn't bring enough plutonium to go home. Um, because, yeah, it would be a one-way trip the way they're describing it. Now, if that's what the Mercatons want, they just want to be able to travel further and expand their empire further than their current borders, that kind of makes sense. Send them out to your closest borders as you build up your own area. It sounds more like what he's saying is he just wants to go anywhere in the galaxy that he possibly can to conquer it, but you would think there'd be more of a strategic way to do that of, you know, um, Build a little bit more outside your borders and a little bit more. Kind of like the ancient Roman Empire used to do. Talking about almost the Hitler-esque Lebensraum, you know, living space thing. Well, we're going to expand because we need a buffer between us and other cultures. But now all those people that we just expanded to cover, to make that buffer, they're Roman citizens. So now we need a buffer to expand and protect them. Which makes those people citizens. Now we need another buffer in this idea of sort of using the buffer idea to continue to expand your society. You almost need to do it in concentric rings, otherwise it wouldn't make sense for the Infinity Gate to be helpful. But I could see how the Infinity Gate would, if it isn't damaged beyond all repair by the end of this story, which it seems like it is, um, that that could be the way that the Jedi expand out into the galaxy because they were using sleeper ships before. And you had sort of this sense that, well, they're not the ones developing hyperspace technology by retro-engineering the Rakatan technology. That's something that happens like with the Corellians and the Duros and such. So how do the Jedi get out of the Tython system where they're somewhat confined ever since the Thoyor brought them there? How do they get out into the broader galaxy, become the Jedi Order, wind up doing all these things we know of the early Jedi uh, uh, stories as they're leading towards the foundation of the Republic? That maybe the Infinity Gate makes sense. And for them, that makes perfect sense. If they're just going to leave Tython behind the way it sounds in the old Republic materials in the MMO, the Infinity Gate's a perfect way to say we're just going to take our entire society and get the heck out of Dodge.
1: But for the Rakatans,
0: I'm not sure how much it makes sense because you wouldn't be able to return. The Jedi wouldn't necessarily be wanting to return. So that would make sense for them.
1: Well, and if this one was destroyed, maybe there was one in the old city and they just went to, like, Dathomir. Or, or, you know, some place that already had a fixed one and that was how they got out. Or... You know, maybe they, they went to multiple fixed ones, not realizing that once one group goes through it, it randomly switches to the next gate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, they're thinking can- they're all going to go to the same spot. Where is everybody?
0: Hey, if, if there can be a stargate in ancient Egypt and a stargate in ancient Antarctica, then by God, there can be infinity gates all over the place on Tython. Um, all right. So uh, as they are making their way down towards the Chaos Wall, that is they being Skalnas and Zesh, leaving look trapped Uh, up above, again, sort of chained to a rock. Um, This is when Seknos manages, with his anger, to blast himself free of the container that he was in, where it was sucking his force energy, and he winds up freeing the other prisoners and taking weapons from the Rakatan guards, basically. And he and the other prisoners are basically leading a huge prison revolt using the dark side, because that's all they know, as you said earlier, as a way of charging into battle. And again, I wonder how much of this was played into by what Trill did with just, "Ah, I'm so angry, blah, with the force lightning stuff because um, otherwise that scene doesn't seem to have played a big role in how he escapes. It seems like it's more just he's he's angry and boom, he blasts his way out of it. Everybody else is like in pain, it looks like, and he's the one who's all determined to get himself out.
1: Yeah, I mean, that one was one where I was uh, left scratch. I love the fact that he goes, my... No, my anger is my own. You will not take it Rah! and bust out. But it does leave me wondering, you know, is part of what they got these force users for because of the fact that all the ricotta can use anymore is the dark side and that they needed to have some way to also access the light side. I don't know. I mean, again, there's not enough in the story to make me really say one way or the other. I'm just left speculating.
0: That sets up the next scene in which uh uh, we have tersendon and tasha rio who again as seers were blinded to the force by zesh and the whole foreshadow thing uh well us through zesh and they activate anang's holocron and basically say you know the the rakantans have landed on tython and are attacking we seek your wisdom and apparently saying that the rakantans are actually attacking tython is like the way to unlock the secrets of this holocron again why didn't you try this within the last year? Especially since we already know the Rakatans attacked Tython once and were pushed back to Skagora according to the opening page of this arc back in the first issue. Um, yeah. But it's basically, a you know, the Rakata have arrived. Then the purpose of this holocron is at last fulfilled. It is time for Tython to awaken. And you get this crackle of energy from it. And I thought at that moment that is going to awaken Tython somehow or awaken the Tho Yor. Um, yeah. but it actually, apparently it's, it's sort of a, it's time for Tython to awaken. Now follow my instructions and let's make this happen. It's not like the Holocron is doing it right then because Tasha still has steps she has to take, um, to make that possible. But I like the whole idea it leaves that question as the issues ending of, you know, what does that mean? Tython's going to awaken, but it's, it feels like that's supposed to be happening right
1: in that instant. Tasha also says, you know, Terrence, I sense her now. Tython is awake. And I'm like. Whoa, wait, did this just go uh, Zenoma Sakat route? Did the planet just become self-aware and it's a she?
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, it's this idea that it's always been kind of this special world, uh, very much like uh, Mortis. But let's not go there, Uh, at least not yet, given the fact that we have the Thoyor still coming up. Um, We have Daganlok managing to fight off a couple of flesh raiders, free himself, take one of their weapons... Um, very, very quickly. I mean, it's kind of like a, oh, they left me to be eaten. Oh, I'm really scared. Yeah, screw that. And he just frees himself very, very quickly. Uh, Seknos shows up there, uh, happening to be sh- going to the place where he senses Zesh. So here's Dagan there fighting the Flesh Raiders. Seknos shows up fighting the Flesh Raiders. And as they're fighting the Flesh Raiders, also drawn by Zesh, in comes Shaykota aboard, uh, Butch. And, uh, in being told that they're down inside the chasm and such, she takes Butch and basically dives towards the chasm, leaves, uh, Seknos up above, but Dagon Loke jumps aboard, and it's a good thing that he did, because he has to put the symbol inside Shay's mind so she knows what to think about, otherwise she'd be driven mad by the Chaos Wall like anybody else would. And basically, in the issue, with Dagon and Shay aboard Butch charging towards the Chaos Wall, I'm um, going down towards where the Infinity Gate is if they can get through the Chaos Wall. And for, um, when I first read this, I remember thinking, oh, wow, that's freaking convenient. All the characters get drawn together to the same place to set up the last issue. That's very convenient storytelling. But at the same time, um, on reading it the second time, I mean, being drawn to Zesh is where this story started in the first place back in Force Storm. So yeah. in a sense, what we've got here, with the exception of Tasha Rio, is, Three of the four people who had sent Zesh in the first place back in the first issue or second issue of Force Storm are now drawn back together again by the sense of needing to stop Zesh, drawn to his location, either physically um, drawn there with Skalnas or being drawn by the sense of where Zesh is, heading towards this final confrontation. It feels very much like we've kind of hit the coda of the series, no pun with Shay's name.
1: Yeah, I, I, I when we get to that end, I mean, it's like, oh, man, everything is moving. We're going forward at a fast pace. I was really excited. And knowing what was going on in the chasm was something I had been wanting to know since, like I said, the zero issue. So knowing that they were about to hit that chaos barrier and what was below it, I was like super excited. I'm like, all
0: right, here we go. Which finally brings us to the final issue of Dawn of the Jedi Force War, the 15th issue of Dawn of the Jedi overall, which is unfortunately the last issue of Dawn of the Jedi. Um, We pick up passing the Chaos Wall as Zesh and Skalnas manage to make it through, and apparently, uh, if you are down towards the Chaos Wall and you don't have a jetpack or something, you apparently just keep falling through it, and you wind up in this weird, soupy, energy, purplish, bluish soup of like dead bodies being burned away by acid kind of stuff. Um, it, it, I've got to wonder if that's supposed to be like the surface of the Infinity Gate if you try to go through it without correctly operating it. Like you're hitting um, the energy wall, like trying to uh, to stand in front of, again using a Stargate example, standing in front of a Stargate when the kawoosh happens and you're just being blasted away by the, the energy <laughs> of it and all. But it's very strange to see that. Um, but we, while Seknos and the newly arrived Quan Jang are finding the Flesh Raiders up above, uh, concerned about what's going on below, we see Dagon and Shay and uh, Butch, again the flying rancor, making their way through the wall. And you have a brief moment of sort of the confrontation between uh, Dagon, who Shay doesn't trust. Uh, Dagan is trying to take control of Butch, or take control of Butch from Shay so he can put the image in Butch's mind so Butch can get through too. Um, but she manages to essentially put it in uh, the creature's mind herself anyway. But they manage to make their way through um, but he talks to her about essentially, um, you know, the betrayal of Zesh, you know. Zesh has betrayed you, says, you can increase your power with anger. Think of how Zesh betrayed you, betrayed all of the Jedi. And she says he didn't, not deliberately, that Rakata, Skownass, has Zesh under his thrall. I can feel your emotions, Shaykota. Like everyone you love deeply, Zesh has abandoned you. Like your parents did, dying in a battle they should have won. That was back during the Despot War. Uh, like Zesh, you gave him your heart and he has betrayed you, hasn't he? And it's sort of, it gives you the sense that Dagan, as he really has been throughout the time that we've known him, um, for all this talk of leading the Jedi and how the Jedi are about balance, he never really has been. This is a guy who's essentially reveling in the dark side and is willing to try to draw that out in her as well. Um, Shay is very conflicted. She's of, of all the Jedi, she's the one who isn't willing to necessarily believe that Zesh is doing all of this of his own accord, which in a sense he is kind of. Um, so she is the one who still has the hope in him very much like sort of Luke showing up to face Vader in return of the Jedi. You know, I, there is still good in him. I sense the conflict and whatnot.
1: Yeah. And that was, that's one of those themes. Like I said, that's when it becomes more Zesh's story at this point. It's like, was he going into it? Was he fighting it? Was he totally under this, uh, like she said, thrall of, you know, the, the Praetor, uh, to me, though, I don't know. I, I like the fact that you've got a group up above fighting, you know, Seknos is up there. He has no idea how to get down below, but he wants to. I mean, he is just so in this red Sith rage. And I love the fact that, you know, he is actually a Sith, so it kind of actually works. But I don't know. I mean, you know, now you got him fighting uh, a Trill and stuff. And th- there's a couple moments here where I'm just kind of like, really? Like, that, that went really fast. And then you get to the end and you're like, wait, I thought so-and-so, like, got taken out. That isn't what I thought. I mean, for example, I mean, when he gets so mad, you know, he's beating up Trill, got her down. He's like, he's like, does this feel like balance to you, Betrayer? Let go of me or I'll kill me. I don't care anymore, Trill. Live or die, it doesn't matter as long as I kill you first. And then the other master, no, Seknos, don't let the darkness consume you. Do not become them. You are a Jedi. And then, you know, the word Jedi like rings that you see his Sith eyes and he gets really mad. And he unleashes all the energy straight up. I mean, I don't know. For me, there's these moments where you watch these characters overcome the darkness that's prevalent throughout all this. I mean, you know, the closest we get is the balance. They keep, they're concerned about the balance, the balance, the balance. And yet they know they're using the darkness and they know that's throwing it out of balance, but no one's screaming, you know, hey, we should be sticking to the light. You know, so I mean, I, I always had that feeling like that would have been probably the next step in like a prelude arc or something like that, where we see the light side kind of kind of take a rise up because of all the stuff that happened through the force war.
0: It's going to leave them much more conflicted than it would have if there was more balance throughout. But I think that sort of is is where you get the idea that they purposely are going to choose to lean towards the light side. You know, like they need to after everything that has happened here. Um, so we go from Shay basically. Uh, you know, not believing that he did this entirely of his own free will, she's shedding a tear. She whispers "Tau," and apparently he hears it through the Force, um, which is the the first moment where you get a sense that maybe he has a chance to waver in his devotion or his, his returned devotion to Skalnas and such. Um, you mentioned the fight with Trill. I found that interesting, but at the same time, you know, I guess it sort of it it fits that he'd be the one. Who would be willing to let her live and take her prisoner and release all that energy instead of killing her. Um, but I did think it was kind of cool that he's fighting. It's not so much that he's zapping her with Force Lightning. He's basically creating energy around his fists as he's doing this. It very much felt like something you'd see in, you know, X-Men or something like that. More so yeah. than what you would necessarily see with Star Wars with Force Lightning. Um, down below, you have, uh, Dagon taking on Skalnas. Butch getting the heck out of the way, and Shay facing off with Zesh. I do find that that's, I mean, it makes sense for that to be the way that it works, but a cheaper way of doing the story could have been to make it so that Shay didn't have to be the one to confront Zesh. And Zesh could go up against his so-called brother, Dagon, and Shay could come in at the last minute and be the one to save the day by talking Zesh down. Instead, it does put the two lovers into direct conflict. And, yeah, I mean, Zesh and... Shay, not Skownass and Dagan. although those two being lovers would be a whole, I mean, that's that's a whole era of a, a slash fiction for some freaks out there, I'm sure. Um, so they're battling, and you get sort of the, the ongoing thing that's always the joke within sci-fi storytelling, especially Star Wars, which is they may be fighting to the death, and it may be a fast-moving lightsaber battle, but they're going to talk the entire time. Um, what we get here is the sense that, that Shay is sort of fighting a, del- a, sort of a delaying tactic. She's trying to get through to Zesh throughout this battle, force saber to force saber, um, not hoping to strike him down, but hoping to finally get him to realize who he was becoming, who he can be, not who he was, because who he was was a slave of the Rakans. It's not like he's got a better man to go back to from his youth or something but that he was becoming a better man and he truly can do that. You know, if you put yourself back on the path, that's the man you could be. Would you rather be Tau, the man, the free man essentially, or be Zesh the slave? Um, and I, I like the fact that that is something that it, it's the, the choice that's given isn't, you know, light side or dark side. It's not that clear cut as it often is in Star Wars, you know, come back to the light, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that it's, do you want to be a free man or do you want to remain a slave? Which is a much more personal type of choice, a much more personal conflict within Zesh than simply something like light and dark, which to him yeah. is something he's not he doesn't even have a full perception of. Um, but before he can make his choice, basically a pair of things happen that wind up delaying the choice, which I thought was kind of interesting because you would expect him to make his choice immediately. Um, you get... Dagon fighting against Skalnas and trying to use his little mind trick thing uh on Skalnas, only to enter his mind and get so overwhelmed by the chaos and the horrors inside Skalnas's mind that Dagon Locke falls to the ground and is stabbed through by Skalnas, Not killing him, but at least taking him out of the fight initially and leaving us wondering if he's dead or not.
1: See, uh, I was hoping he was dead. I thought that was the I way expected, he died. I yeah. Well, because like you explained, you know... Dagon had been playing at you know walking away from the darkness and like at this moment it's like he's reveling in the fact that he's dark he's got his nasty tricks and all this stuff and then when he gets inside the minds of Praetor Praetor is so much more evil so much more nastier that he's completely out of his depths so much so that like you said he drops to his knees and is completely helpless I mean he is unarmed when he gets struck down and I to me I thought that was a fitting end for him but as we find out later, that wasn't where he died. But, you know, going back to what you were saying where Coda was talking to 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 Zesh, the part for me that I love the most is where she goes, no, I took you into my heart. Now look into your own. I know what you felt. We shared a bond that was real. Don't lie. To me or yourself, the Rakata only ever showed you the dark side. It was all that you were allowed. When exposed to the light side, you drank it like a man dying of thirst. And, you know, it's, that, it's the Mara Jade scenario here. You know, I mean you know, Mara was killing people. She was using the dark side, but that didn't necessarily make her evil because that was all she was ever shown. And I like that, that she gives him that out, you know, that, that, you know, it, this isn't just of your doing. And I, I like that because it's the redeeming moment that she's able to throw it out there and let him kind of come to that conclusion on his own.
0: I like it. Although I, I, one, I can't read that scene without hearing Kenny Rogers old, uh, Love will level You around going through my head that I heard so much as a kid. Um, but it does feel like some pretty heavy-handed dialogue there. I took you into my heart. Now look into your own, et cetera, like you were saying. You know, when exposed to the light side, you drank of it like a man dying of thirst. And that's true. But it's very heavy-handed dialogue to be having in the midst of a fight. She's very eloquent for someone who's channeling the dark side to use the Force Saber battling against him in the middle of a fight to come up with. But again, that's sort well- of the... The conceit of Star Wars lightsaber duels is that no matter how heavy and intense the duel is, you can always get out your
1: monologue. See, for me, I go back to that high school relationship thing because it's like she's in that she's not ready to let it go. It doesn't matter how bad it is. She's willing to overlook anything to get back with him kind of thing.
0: It's interesting, though, because, again, like I said, it sort of gets, there's the two things that happen that sort of interrupt this decision making. There's Dagon being taken down, but there's also, just as she's saying, you know, you stand at cross paths. You can be Zesh the Hound, the slave, or you can be Tao, the free man, bound to the past or open to the future, your choice. And before he can really choose, Skalmas, who now is free of having to fight, Dagon, look, activates the Prime Infinity Gate.
1: Um, yeah,
0: yeah, shroom, and it just, it's, it activates this, it's this weird sort of a sequence in which you've got this flat surface that has almost like a honeycomb looking grid over it that shows different areas of space and such. Um, as if, you know, the gate is open, all you have to do is essentially dive into it. Uh, and as that's happening, we see Tasha Rio's story. Coming full circle. A character that we met back when we met these other characters in Force Storm, and yet she has not played a big combat role in Force War. Um, she travels with the Holocron down to the lower level of the temple at Anilkesh, and basically she isn't severed from the Force. She's blinded to it. Again, kind of like a Ulit Kaldroma in a sense. So what she has to do essentially is give up her mortal shell, die as a physical being to connect back to the Force, and in doing so, basically use the, the energies there with the Holocron's assistance to supposedly, whatever they call it, awaken Tython. Or in other words, awaken the Yor themselves. Um, she's going to have to be the one to make the sacrifice. And it was interesting to me that the one who has to make the sacrifice is not the one in combat. Usually what we would expect is something like a, a an Obi-Wan Kenobi letting himself be killed by Vader as a way of making himself a spirit guide, in a sense, for for Luke, and allowing Luke and them to finally get away from the Death Star and all, even though they're being trapped and let go in the first place. Um, You would expect the sacrifice to be on the battlefield so someone can go, No! about it. And instead, that's not what we get here. The sacrifice is happening away from the battlefield in a much more serene setting, and it's not being made by someone being cut down in conflict, it's being made as a conscious choice, very much like Obi-Wan, as Mm -hmm. Tasha is willing to give away her physical form as a means of awakening Tython. I found that to be another of these interesting storytelling choices, that you've got one of the biggest sacrifices of this entire arc happening in a much more quiet, controlled location, than all the chaos of battle that's supposedly the heart of this climax.
1: Well, and the moment where the Holocron image, you know, he's mentioning, you know, blinded is not severed. The force flows through all living things and it still flows through you. You know, you mentioned Yulik, but that also could be applied to when Vajer stripped Jason of the force for a little while. The Vong themselves, what happened to them as a species. I mean, you know, I've always had a feeling that what happened with Yulik and them was was similar, you know, that they were always connected through the unifying force, even though they couldn't be felt in the living force. And for me, that kind of reinforced that feeling.
0: And as that's happening, of course, uh Skalnas basically has supposedly won. Um and Zesh, still not having totally made the choice, tells her, you know, Shay, surrender or you will die here. The gate is open. There's nothing that you can do to stop Skalnas now. Not speaking very dramatically and such. Um and she, in her last, what may be the last moments of her life, she thinks, says, you know, that she can't stop him. What she can do is forgive Tao slash. Zesh. Not forgive him for what he's done um, to her, but also to others, hoping that he can forgive himself and that that's what love is, is that hope in the other person being able to forgive themselves and be a better person. And you have this moment where they're looking at each other about to kiss, and you would think that maybe at that moment it could have just been a kiss, maybe Zesh forgives himself. But he's basically surrendering at this point. He's given up. He thinks there's no way to stop scalnas But scalnas has to, again, pull the Bond villain thing and do that last thing that just pisses him off, which is to, <laughs> as they're about to kiss, blast her with force lightning. Must I do your work, hound? Uh, that Jedi creature was a fool. You were a force hound, servant of the dark. Look within yourself and see the truth. Love is nothing. Love is a lie. Power is everything. With the gate at my command, I am power. My Rakatan Empire will truly be infinite. Everyone else will be either a slave like you or dead like her. And he's looking at him with the Sith eyes and leaves, you know, you are meat and attacks. And you gotta wonder if Skalnosh just hadn't had to do that last indignity of blasting Shay. Would he have still managed to win, but instead he pulls the Bond villain,
1: he shoots the girl, and the guy has to go whoop his ass? One of the things that disturbs me about this story, and it gets back to that philosophy angle, is this is a story where you need darkness to defeat darkness, and I... I don't know how well that sits with me. I mean, I keep like, I've always wanted this, but now that I'm getting it, I don't know if it's really what I think we should be seeing where I I keep going. You know, there's gotta be another story down the road as to where the Jedi kind of focused on the light because there is a lot of darkness here and the balance is already tipped and they're still just plunging into darkness. And I'm just like, how are we ever going to put things back into balance?
0: I must say though, I like that it's told in this format though in this media, I think in a novel or in a comic that can really work. It, it would disturb me if that was a type of storytelling we were seeing within the Clone Wars cartoon series. That was more directed towards younger audiences, you know, sometimes when they're not dealing with suicide bombers and darker topics like that. Um, but I think in this case it, it, it works. And you've got basically, finally, we see Tasha um, go into the energy flow of this exploratory beam, I guess is what it is. It's coming from Neo-Kesh down into the chasm and um, she leaps out. You know, act now, says the holocron. Yes, terse. Can you feel it? Anang spoke the truth. I am one with the Force again. One with Tython. One with the Tho Yor. I now understand who created the Tho Yor and why. And tell uh, me exactly tell me now. <laughs> We're like, oh, she's gonna tell us. No, 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 she's not. They're never going to wind up probably ever answering that, because as far as we know, the EU as it stands may wind up being rebooted for all we know in the near future. They haven't said anything, but the chances of getting any more depth to this, at least from this creative team, isn't going to happen because they're jumping over to Marvel and such. Um But the Thoyor symbols light up! And then the Thoyor themselves, uh, which again, are one of the things that they pointed out back, and even as far back as that issue number zero thing, was this idea that they are floating above most of these academies and it fires down and apparently up as well this blast of energy that just it's weird because it look it's it should be destroying Anilkesh and it's more like it goes through it and comes out all of its windows and everything is blasting everywhere
1: I saw that more is coming up because you notice she's in a blue beam and when she says she knows everything, there's that chakium, and there is a gold light, which I assumed was her life energy going upwards into the chasm.
0: Yeah, go, go, going upwards into the Thoyor.
1: Yeah, that's what I meant. Upwards into yeah. the Thoyor.
0: But then the blast itself seems like it's going downwards because it's going downwards out of Anilkesh into the chasm, and up in, you know, up above, you've got this energy that's just seeking out and destroying. Um, the Rakatan ships. It's not just coming out of the top of the Thoyor, it's shooting out of the center of the little symbols on the different upper faces. And then you got the beam shooting down that hits the infinity gate. And in, it, it's, it looks like it says they have destroyed your gate and your plans for conquest is what Zesh says. Which makes you wonder if this has disabled it or completely destroyed it, but it turns the gate as it was, you know, you, it, so that weird honeycomb grid that you can see other places in the galaxy through, it changes it into that weird, murky, acidic, bluish, swamp-looking thing like we saw earlier, for them to finish their battle on, Um, and finally Zesh manages to take down uh, the man who essentially betrayed him in a lot of ways and brainwashed him, cuts down Skalnas. Skownas' body falls into that weird, liquidy, purplish, whatever it is, surface of the Infinity Gate, where he gets basically burned down very, very quickly into just bones. Says, you know, I am not your hound. I am not your slave. I am not Zesh. I am Tao. Um, and that's it, it, you'd see that sort of as the moment in a movie where the music builds like bum bum bum, but then very quickly you have, and I, I, this reminds me so much of filmmaking, where you have that moment, and that's sort of like the who the audience is like whoo. There's our climax right there of the story. But then immediately, oh yeah, by the way, we're not out of danger yet. Um, we need to get the heck out of here. You know, we, the, the Holy <laughs> Grail may be gone, um, but the entire structure is still coming down around us. We got to get the heck out of here. Um, Indian sons and all. Um, and they <laughs> they find that Dagon conveniently is still alive. They hop on Butch and fly right out of there, presumably because with everything that's going on, the Chaos Wall isn't an issue anymore. Um And it leads us into sort of our, and in the end, this is how things turned out, type of pages. But I found, as weird as it was at times, and as much as this sort of, uh, the, the time frame somehow made it feel awkward, I found this to be a very good ending, a solid ending. I wish we knew more about the whole Thor, your stuff. But to bring the Thoyor into the picture a little bit more, um, to wipe out the threat of the Infinity Gate, to let Zesh be the one to finally take out Skalnaz, and at the same time make that choice that's at the the core of his character, um, that's the way I would have expected this series to end, and in that sense, it does not disappoint.
1: Yeah, and one of my favorite lines is, you know, when the Praetor's like, Betrayer! And he says, Zesh says, this is not a betrayal, this is a rebellion, right as he slashes. That, to me, was my favorite line. You know, it was like, this isn't about betrayal. This is us rising above you. And, you know, I mean, when you think about the fact that the Rakata were the builders and that they had kind of succumbed to a dark side and all that, and that here that dark side's knocking at the door, wanting access to a key that them to take over even more, you know, and, and the Qua had stopped them originally. Well, now it's up to the Jedi to stop them the rest of the way. Through this rebellion, and you know, not only did they just rebel against the way of life that they had known it, but they also rebelled against the ricotta They took their own lightsabers, made them their own. You know, they learned more about the Force, and they used that against them. I I, I love the way it worked. I mean, yeah, I'm with you in the regards. Of, I I did want a lot more. I really wish that this would have been like a eight or a twelve, even a fifteen. You know, issue arc if they'd had it all tied together, that would have been cool. But they they do a good job of putting a lot in there in five issues and making it feel satisfactory. Unlike Invasion, like you said.
0: Mm -hmm. I think the the last couple pages feel to me, uh, one of my favorite music cues uh, in all of Star Wars is as we get out of the Battle of Geonosis and such uh, at the end of Attack of the Clones, you get the music that sounds like the Imperial March, but it's done in a much more patriotic sounding sort of way. As Bail Organa looks out at the clone troopers and such with the other politicians and he does the whole, you know, kind of fist on the railing thing like a I can't believe we're doing this and yet it must be done type of feeling. You get this big swell of music that's victorious, but at the same time, it has the undertones of darkness to it of threats to come and then very quickly transitions into across the stars as we see the wedding between Anakin and Padme. And it kind of feels like that's what we're getting here. In the second to last page, we see what's going on with the Jedi. They say it's exactly what they expected. Skalnas is dead. The different sub-Predors started fighting amongst themselves. And between the settled world forces and the Jedi forces and that infighting going on they were able to drive the Rakatans completely out of the Tython system, that threat is gone. And there's, the, there's essentially a split within the Jedi, though. One group who essentially believes that they should put down the Force Sabres, not use them anymore because they don't don't work with balance. They're only about one side of the force, the dark side and such. The gate isn't a threat. We don't believe the Rakatans will return, so it's time to sort of focus on meditating towards the light side and such. They're going to send all the former Rakatan slaves who knew nothing but dark side and put them on Bog and let them meditate and hopefully find the light side and such. Um, but the conflict is over, so let's become peaceful again and seek balance. And yet then there's Dagan Lok, who basically says, you know, Uh, We're not really safe. We don't know for sure they're not ever going to return. There are still flesh raiders out there, so yeah, screw it. I'm not putting down the Force saber, and don't you dare try to put me or anyone who wants to follow me onto Bogan, because A, it's going to be pretty freaking crowded up there, and B, you know, um, that's no place essentially for a hero. Uh, We will not consent to being sent there again. And you get this sense that the Jedi are already starting to disintegrate into at least two different factions. A light side, and in a sense, what amounts to sort of a dark side, or at least leaning towards dark side faction, which may be where you get some of the the instances within some of the source material out there, like the new Essential Chronology, talking about sort of the first light siders, first dark siders. Uh, you got to wonder which side Rajivari is going to wind up falling on, because he is said to be one of the ones to push people towards the dark side quite a bit in the backstory that he's given within the Old Republic MMO. But you get sort of that sense of, there's victory! and yet trouble's still to come, and then we move, just like with Anakin and Padme, to the, you know, bring on the love music, because Tao slash Zesh and Shay are about to finally travel into the silent desert, the same thing that we saw back in uh, the Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void uh, novel as a, as a prime location within that story's flashbacks, um, here they are. He has been a hero. He's able to wander the surface to seek balance and such, to do it like any kind of Jedi journeyer would, as opposed to being sent back to Bogan and such. Um She asks if he's ready to essentially seek balance and continue on. Um, they kiss. He says, I am. And just like our, you know, z- you know, irising out to the end of the music in Attack of the Clones, we have them walking into the desert. We see Bogan and Ashla... Uh, uh, in the distance, and whoo, iris out, little B end marker, end marker down in the corner. Um, it's a pat, quick ending, but I gotta say that if you wanted to set up an ending to this story that still left room for more, if the series were to continue, and yet gave us a satisfactory feeling conclusion, I'm not sure you could have done it more cinematically feeling than that.
1: Yeah. Kudos to the team. They did a really good job. Uh, the art and stuff was great. Loved it. Uh, again, I just get back to, you know, so much happened. It, it very much felt like invincible. You know, there were, there were scenes in that one where whole battles happened like with between paragraphs. And I was like, Oh, I wanted to see that. You know, there was a lot of stuff that I would have loved to see happen, or even if they ever go back and, and do books and stuff, it would be so cool to see because I, that's just, a really cool era, and, and they put out mystery stuff that that drew me in right away. You know, getting to know what was at the bottom of the chasm, though, I was super super stoked that they actually gave us that. That was one of those things that I was really wanting to know. I mean, it would have been cool to know, you know, what made the silent sands so silent. You know, like a, a definitive answer there too. But you know, part of Star Wars is part of the mystery. So as long as they they've got that, they're still succeeding there. And the story did do a very good job of being satisfactory. I mean, you know, like I said, when we get to issue three suddenly the whole series that, that was telling a new era suddenly became more character driven for me. And, you know, it felt like it suddenly it became Zesh's story and, and how he was going to be redeemed. And that, you know, that's where the love story between him and, and Shaykota kind of comes in because, I mean, if it wasn't for her love and her falling in love with him, I don't think he would have been able to be redeemed. You know, he had given up on all hope. She was the hope. And when she had that moment where she forgave him for everything, that's where it allowed him to forgive himself. And that was the redeeming moment for me. I mean, and I think that that, you know, that last bit in the comic, that worked perfect. A great way to resolve the whole series and a good place to end it.
0: So I would say overall, this was, it's not Dawn of the Jedi as a whole. It's not my favorite Star Wars comic series. Legacy still has that, uh, that, moniker for me. And Tales of the Jedi is probably still my second favorite, Rogue Squadron then coming in. Um, but this is a very strong series in general for what it tried to do. It tried to introduce a lot of characters at once, a lot of concepts at once, and give us a story that was almost too epic in its scope to fit within the confines of one comic series and one novel. Um yeah. it's gonna always feel to me like of all the different Star Wars comic series, of all the different Star Wars eras, uh, if I had to grade it, this would be like a B-plus or an A-minus era. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but it was highly entertaining. I really enjoyed the world-building of this new era, and I wish they could have gone uh further with it. Certainly one of the stronger Star Wars comic series to have in recent years, but it was never one that really got my my energy level up the way that something like a Legacy or a Tales of the Jedi did. But it was always one that I was excited about enough that even though I order my comics through uh, Things from Another World, which means they usually show up about a week after they actually come out, that when any issue of this series would come out, I would always pick it up digitally on the day it came out to read it before it showed up for my collection. Um, which says something because I don't usually do that with comic series.
1: Yeah, it was a good one. Now, moving into covers, I, you know, I got to admit, like, I wasn't that impressed with the covers. I mean, they, they're okay, but there's no you know, major one that leapt out is, oh, that's my favorite. You know, I mean, they, they I don't know. Levels of mediocrity could be one way of putting it. I mean, they're not terrible, but they're nothing anything that makes me want. I, I don't know. I don't know if I take many of these and make them screenshots on my computer, you know, if that makes sense. Um, if I did, it'd probably just be the first one. Uh, you know, uh, the way Zesh is done, it, it looks enough like him. And, and you got Trill in the background and he's standing in what looks like some swamp water and he's got some of the, the flesh eaters around him. I, I like the way it works, the green of the cover and stuff like that. You know, the second one, you've got him and, and Trill going at it, which is weird because I don't recall that scene actually really kind of happening in this one. But, you know, it works. But again, that, that, that kind of painted powdery type style of everything is weird. And then, of course, the Torture of Master Locke. That one, it it could have been cool, but the face, I have a hard time believing it's Locke or Zesh, because those two were always kind of drawn close enough that the lines blurred, and in this case, you know, it says the Torture of Master Locke, but when I see the face, I naturally assume it's Zesh, but the costume is totally Locke. Uh, Fourth one, you've got Shaykoda, she's riding on top of Butch, and Butch has a very predator kind of look or the, the monsters from the first ghostbuster movie, you know, I, I don't know a little weird there. Uh, kind of cartoony in like that 1970s dot matrix kind of cartoony. The last one has a lot of promise with the final battle where you've got Coda and Zesh kind of going at each other. But again, that, that, that the style kind of reminds me too much of, I would say the, uh, tyrants fist, uh, purge, uh, kind of like the very first of the dark times, that kind of grittiness, but I don't know, it's it's not really one of my favorites, so I I can't really say much beyond that. What about you, Nathan?
0: Yeah, all these are by uh, David Michael Beck, I believe is the name of the artist for these. Uh, I mean, again, I would say sort of the same thing. I mean, none of them are great, none of them are particularly bad, um, but it certainly isn't something I'd be using as uh, no, screenshot artwork to use for anything. Um, first one, The Dark Side Beckons. It's all right. You know, you got Trill in the background. You got Zesh standing there with, you know, the dead flesh raiders. At least you can tell that it's meant to be Zesh. Um, I kind of like number two, you know, even though it's not something that actually happens inside the issue because you can tell that it's Zesh beating up on Trill and those two are the ones fighting, you know, old friends, uh, old enemies and such. Um, Well, real quick,
1: real quick, I want to point in there. You ever notice that it's got kind of like an evil dead Bruce Campbell versus the uh, demon kind of look to it?
0: That is true. It does kind of look like that. Um, I agree with you on three that there's sort of that question of, well, wait a second, is that supposed to be zest or look? I mean, you're right. They do tend to look a lot alike. Uh, not as much in this arc as in the previous one. Um, I do find it interesting that when you look at the different covers, um, and I don't know what this is called in actuality in artwork. I know that in Photoshop you call it stroke. Um, If you look at all these covers, Dawn of the Jedi Force War, and the names of the individuals who are part of the creative team, and the symbol for this era, and all that stuff, even the number of the issue and the price, are all simply done as plain white text. Um... Some of it has a slight shadow behind it, but it's generally just plain white text. This is the only one, probably because of how much white there is from the artwork, that sort of white and green, that Dawn of the Jedi Force War, the torture of Master Locke, the names of the individuals, the symbol and everything have a stroke, or whatever you call it, of black around the white lettering on all of them, to give it more definition. I thought that was kind of an odd thing when I saw it. It doesn't really stand out unless you really look at the cover. Um, Same thing with four... I would agree with you. I'm not sure what exactly it is that's up with Butch's face, but it works alright, I guess. Uh, War comes to the Jedi's doorstep! And I do like the last one, uh, the final battle, where it's got Shay versus uh, uh, Zesh, although I gotta wonder about uh, how she looks like she's sort of almost turning her blade on herself. Um, I do like the fact that he's sort of jumping into the combat, though it looks like he's jumping in behind her, as opposed to into her here. It gives you a good sense of how the Force Sabers in general are generally much longer. Um, at least Zesh's is compared to the others, especially since he has the ability to apparently have the, the dual-sided thing. Um, I did find that Zesh's face on here, if you couldn't see the symbol on his face, it'd be another one where it's easy to confuse him with Dagan Loke. And I can't look at that cover, again with the musical references, without thinking of both uh, and it doesn't matter which face I look at, whether I look at Shay's face with her mouth open that way, or uh, uh, Zesh's face with his mouth open that way, without thinking of a Michael Jackson, ho, oh! kind of thing happening <laughs> in that shot. So you see that, and it's either that, I mean, it's either that that are both calling the freaking Thundercats
1: in the oh shot. Oh my god. Well, another thing, I mean, I when I first look at it, it looks like they are fighting each other, but on second thought, after you pointed out with her lightsaber, they could be defending each other. You know, she could be taking an attack off of his back and he could be taking an attack off her. It would work in that direction just as easily.
0: Oh, that is very, very true. It's, it's, it almost looks like you got the two characters drawn separately and then layered on top of each other in Photoshop in a way that doesn't make it look like they're actually fighting each other. So yeah, it may be that they're actually fighting opposite directions side by side is what's meant to be taken from that. I don't, I don't think that's the first impression most people are going to get, but it certainly would make more sense about the way that the the characters are layered in the shot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: now that about wraps up this episode of star wars beyond the films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, 2nd Airborne Division, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at WarsFanworks.com.
0: That's right, and we do have an episode coming up in the near future, which is going to be our episode uh, dealing with questions. I believe by the time that this episode, though, comes out, the questions have already been wrapped up. But don't forget, you can send us feedback. We do have a feedback episode coming sometime in the near future as the feedback builds up. So if you don't get your questions in for that question and answer episode, don't worry. You'll have a chance to get your questions heard and uh, and answered on the show. Also, if you want to get uh, set up, because by the time this is coming out, we should have the first episode, I think, out uh, to be able to check out that simul release of the Republic Forces Radio Network discussion on Clone Wars Season Six. That's being released through the old Republic Forces Radio Network feed and RepublicForces.com, but also through a new feed for Rebels Roundtable with some exclusive interview-style bits built into there then uh, you should be checking out Facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable or you should be checking out uh, Twitter at Rebels Round. Right now, the rebelsroundtable.com address will send you just straight over to the Star Wars Report website for the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Um, We'll be doing more with that as those episodes are being released. At this point, as of the time we're recording this, the feed isn't live yet, nor is the page on starwarsreport.com, because we need that first episode out there before either of those is live. But the Facebook page, the Twitter feed are both active right now. And by the time you listen to this episode, we'll probably have the episodes uh, starting to come out there. Also, of course, if you want to check out some continuity discussion and chronological discussion, check out facebook.com slash SW Timeline Goal. That is the Facebook page for my Star Wars Timeline Goal where we get into a little bit more nitpicky and nitty gritty issues of continuity uh, beyond what shows up on the Star Wars Beyond the Films Facebook page. Be sure to check that one out as well.
1: Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you are our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Warsport, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles, and you can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or any other genre out there without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate, because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, four stars beyond the films. It's Ben Mark and Whistler, and Nathan saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you.
0: And don't quote us the odds. We actually will have episodes of our season six coverage out by the time you hear this episode. We're working on it. Yeah, I like those odds.